Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks all to all of you for uh, being with us for today's show. As usual, political news coming at us like a fire hose that we can hardly keep control over. So I want to get right to the panel and introduce him so we can start talking about the news. Um, Greg Bluestein joins us, as he does on Wednesdays. Uh, he, of course, is political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, now an analyst for NBC News Platforms and the author of Flipped, which he's continuing his book, which he is continuing, I see on social media, to be out there um, doing events for selling left and right. And Greg Bluestein, you're joining us from Savannah today. Yeah, I'm in a beautiful hotel in historic downtown Savannah. I came to cover not just the, the Hyundai groundbreaking, but also campaign events for Governor Kemp. Senator Warnock and Senator Ossoff, who joined him on the trail for his first in-person campaign rally of the campaign season just last night here in Savannah. Well, thank you for being with us uh, today. And speaking of being in Savannah, Margaret Coker is back with us as well. She's editor-in-chief of The Current, based out of Savannah, a digital news uh, publication which looks at news from the coast but also um, uh, news across the state of Georgia as well. Margaret People can read you at thecurrentga.org, and we always emphasize the .org because you are one of the burgeoning nonprofit news organizations in the state. Welcome to the show today, Margaret. Thanks. We're so happy always to take part and to um, bring a um, Georgia view outside of Atlanta to your show. Riley Bunch is back with us. She's the uh, public policy and politics reporter at GPB News. How are you today, Riley? You've been in the courtroom for the last two days. Yes, it's been a, a long couple days for myself and the other reporters and the people involved in um, the trial of the new state constitutional bench trial of HB 481, Georgia's strict abortion ban. So it has been long couple start to this week. Uh, in a little while, we'll ask you to give us your observations about what you uh, saw. But before we do that, let's also introduce Tammy Greer, professor of political science at Clark Atlanta University. Uh, Tammy, we know that one of the things that you are particularly interested in in your work is the composition of the electorate and how people get out there and vote. This is an exciting time for you, also a busy one. Very busy. Uh, and it's great looking at these early of voting numbers and how all is coming together. So it's very exciting. We should say at the very top of the show, Greg, we have now had in the first eight days of early voting, 1,123,329 people having cast ballots. That's 51% higher than this same time in early voting in the 20, last midterm election, 2018, Greg. Pretty staggering. Yeah, we're still not even, or we're still about at the halfway point of early voting. So we're seeing a tremendous surge 
Professor Greer, I'm sure, has more to say about this, but we're not sure who this benefits, right? Um, so far, we, you know, Democrats and Republicans both have, have you know, see inklings of, of good news, but we're not sure if this cannibalizes the election day vote or mail-in vote or all this stuff. It's just hard to read into exactly what this means, but we know it's a very good thing that there's so, such high voter participation. Well, Tammy, what's your take on all of that? So um, I understand that um, you had a large um, uh, turnout of of non-white voters, um, which has been kind of the push for um, uh, for the political spaces and in nonprofit organizations that look to get non-white voters to to vote and to take advantage of early voting, right, um, to avoid long lines and such. Um, so that seems to be um, uh, interesting in, in what the turnout is. But to Greg's point, you know, um, that is the first week. What does the subsequent weeks look like? What does election, the last day to vote look like? Um, and is there like a big push in the beginning? Yet there could be a drop off. Um, so it's important for all of us to advocate for no matter who you vote for, uh, to take advantage of early voting and the last day to vote, um, to have an increased voter participation in the state. Yeah, Tammy, to amplify what you said, uh, according to Ryan Anderson, whose uh, Georgia Votes website is kind of a go-to place on the Internet for all of us who pay attention to this stuff, he tells us that 31-plus percent of the uh, turnout, early voting turnout, is among black uh, voters, Margaret, that's above the par- the uh, percentage of uh, African Americans in the Georgia population. So, if you're Stacey Abrams' campaign, and if you're counting on black vote turning out for you, uh, you may take uh, that as a, a good sign at this stage, early in the race. Yeah, I know that um, on the show over the last several weeks, you've been focused a lot on campaign ads. Bill, but you know, I'm I'm struck as I get in my car and drive to meetings and go to the grocery store and, and do all that. I'm struck with the number of public service announcements on the radio um, saying it's time to vote, go vote, you can go vote early, use your voice, be part of our democracy. And that seems to be a pretty strong message as well, right? I mean, we're, it, it's just the early voting turnout numbers, the amount of fear and trepidation about whether or not your vote's going to count this time around after all of the disinformation and the weaponization of voter integrity issues since 2020. Um, I think it's heartening that that um, us Georgians are, are getting out and participating because, as we like to say here at The Current, democracy is not a spectator sport. <laughs> That's true. Riley, um, women are voting at a, a stronger percentage than men, uh, about 55 percent to 45 percent. Um, I'm not sure that's as big a gap as um, many people would like to see between men and women. Women do typically vote at a higher percentage than men. Riley? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that women are particularly targeted in this election because of the abortion issue. And also we've seen campaigns target women on on issues of the economy, right? Um, So even though we haven't seen a big increase, this is a big number to watch because Democrats are really banking on women turning out um, on the issue of abortion. And um, and, but the one thing that the, the early um, votes don't capture or, you know, the full scope of absentee ballots. And I think that's also something that we're going to have to watch as well. 
Absolutely. All right, um, Greg, let's talk about the big event down uh, near Savannah yesterday. Um, Hyundai is uh, uh, groundbreaking, had their groundbreaking for their electric vehicle manufacturing plant, one of the biggest, I think the biggest economic development project in the state of Georgia, over $5 billion. And uh, it was interesting, Greg, you were there. Uh, Obviously, the governor was center stage for this event, but Raphael Warnock was uh, at the event as well. So was John Ossoff. Just give us a flavor of what you saw unfold down there yesterday. Yeah, so this took place in a tiny rural area called Ellabelle, about 20 minutes away from um, downtown Savannah. Uh, And as Margaret mentioned earlier, Crest had to go on a little luxury bus that was that went from Savannah's new Civic Center, um, their new stadium area, all the way to this to this uh, office kind of rural dirt road um, right near I-16. So not terribly far from the highway at all. Um, and you get there, and there's this you know unbelievable pavilion tented with. They're giving out champagne. They're giving out orange juice. They have pastries, um, and really. You know, the, the, the local Savannah area's political leaders, their entire political establishment is there, as well as um, a lot of South Korean glitterati. Yeah, the U.S. ambassador from South Korea was there. A number of Hyundai executives, of course, were there, and a number of South Korean officials. And from the get-go, it's a bipartisan event, as you mentioned, because both Senators Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff were both there. Um, of course, Governor Kemp was there and a number of Republican officials, but it didn't mean the event was apolitical because from the get-go, you've got Governor Kemp using this event to proclaim his decision to open the economy early during the pandemic, helped lead to Hyundai's um, uh, investment in, in Southeast Georgia. And then you had the U.S. ambassador from, North, from South Korea to the U.S. Um, basically take a shot at the federal climate and, uh, and, and, and health care bill saying that it would hurt Hyundai if, if changes weren't made. Yeah, um, Margaret, uh, since that's down your way, let me turn to you on this uh, next. Uh, the concern has been that the bill that Greg just mentioned has a provision which says that the electric vehicle tax credit will not apply unless electric vehicles, the finishing, uh, the finishing of an electric vehicle takes place in the United States. Hyundai, obviously... Uh, only has its plants now in South Korea. They won't be open for business here until 2025. So one of the things that Warnock is trying to emphasize is his effort to get a workaround in the law that will uh, suspend uh, that provision until after Hyundai's already got its plant open here. That's right. It seems like when that provision was was written in the original bill, it was a way for um, for the Democratic leadership in the House and the Senate to try and and emphasize American manufacturing. Right. And so American manufacturers like like Ford and Chevrolet, who are already making um, EV vehicles, they're going to benefit first from that bill. Um, it's, it's an interesting political football right now because. You know, in South Korea, um, Kia, which is, of course, the um, subsidiary of Hyundai, they have said over and over again in the Korean press that they don't get that same subsidy from their own government in Korea. And in fact, the way the law is written in America might actually pressure them and push them to open their facilities in America early, well ahead of that 2025 date. So there's a a bit of, of volleyball happening here. Of course, Hyundai, the parent company, is going to take 
full advantage of their spotlight and try and push for better terms. But it comes down now to campaign issues where both, I think, the governor's um, campaign staff, of course, our congressman, Buddy Carter, here in the 1st District, they're trying to take it, take this ball and run with it in, in terms of um, their own political fortunes in November. Riley, um, this is an event that, once again, we mentioned this on the show yesterday, proves the power of incumbency during an election campaign. This is a huge uh, uh, event for Governor Kemp to take advantage of with just two weeks to go until the last day of voting on November 8th. And as Greg Bluestein pointed out, he did just that uh, in his uh, observations, his comments yesterday. Well, absolutely. The enti- almost the entirety of Governor Kemp's campaign has hinged on his economic record as an incumbent, right? You know, he touts his um, ability to keep Georgia's economy up and running during the pandemic and, and a lot of these major developments that he's brought to the state that have created a lot of jobs and are very big long-term industry investments. So it's very, very good for him to have this event and to show kind of this large-scale effort and win that he brought for Georgia just two weeks ahead of the election, right? We, we saw that this announcement came during the primary um, during his campaign against David Perdue, which gave him a little bit of an edge. And we're seeing it now running up to the, the midterm. And, and it's, it's good news for Kemp, for sure. Um, Tammy, uh, weigh in on that. So, um, again, I, I think the first uh, economic clustering is 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 what Kemp is attempting to do um, to, by having uh, these like industries together, particu- particularly in the rural areas, uh, to help um, generate um, uh, economic um, traction in those areas and those spaces that have been economically depressed uh, because of loss of, of tr- quote-unquote traditional industry here in Georgia. And it, it's working. Um, it's also important, though, I think the, the nuance seems to continue to be missing. And Abrams pointed it out during the debate that, you know, the the state is receiving, you know, quite a bit of income from the federal government, uh, while at the same time there's a a shaming of some of these uh, laws that took uh, into effect that allowed for states like Georgia to benefit, which then allowed for um, the governor and the legislature to then, like, shift priorities because of this extra income that came in. So it's an interesting dynamic here of what's going on with almost a shaming Democrats for spending the money, yet benefiting from the money and then using, you know, that excess to uh, lure businesses to Georgia, which is an add to the economy. Talk, talking about uh, the federal uh, COVID relief money, the billions that have poured into states across the country, including Georgia. Um, Greg, there's another interesting aspect to this, it strikes me. Uh, and that's that if this were not an election year, um, and if we were not two weeks from election day, uh, there might be more open criticism of the enormous giveaways that the state of Georgia is handing out to attract uh, uh, Hyundai to attract Rivian, uh, which is also, of course, on, uh, beginning the process of building their plant. But um, because there are those who feel the tax credits are just not really necessary 
uh, to bring these businesses to the state. Um, but Democrats can't possibly criticize projects that are going to add 8,000 plus jobs to the state economy. It puts them in a very difficult position, doesn't it? It does. It puts them in a bind. But I, I would say there has been enormous criticism about the incentives. And that's something that Stacey Abrams has has focused on, saying that these types of incentives should go to smaller and mid-sized businesses rather than Fortune 500 companies or elite companies that don't necessarily need them. Um, and so we've written about a lot of that criticism. It's, it's particularly sharp, not here in Savannah, but with the Rivian plant. Um, which yeah. is another, it's, a, it's the second biggest economic development project in Georgia history. And that's with a company that many people hadn't heard of before it decided to set stakes in uh, Northeast and in East, East Georgia. So there has been a lot of criticism. Certainly David Perdue um, said he wouldn't have even offered these, this incentive package to try to land Rivian. So it became a focus of the, uh, the race for Republican, the Republican primary for governor. But look, in the end, that entire area around Rivian voted overwhelmingly for Governor Kemp. So it seemed like, um, at least if it wasn't a, an endorsement of the, of, the, uh, of the incentives, at least it didn't hold Governor Kemp back in any way, even with an outspoken a group of people in that neighborhood who really opposed that Rivian project. But it's certainly something that has continued to be on the forefront. And a lot of these incentives bill, they're, they're statutory. They're built into the law that says for each job you create, you get X amount of incentives. So there's, of course, other perks. There's infrastructure. There's something called the Quick Start Program, which is a program that helps train um, workers that the state underwrites. But some of these, stat some of these uh, incentives are basically formulaic. They're done according to the state law. Uh, you know what? Thank you for being my editor in terms of what I said a minute ago. Uh, you're right that over the course of time that both Rivian and Hyundai announced they were coming in, there has been criticism of the incentives. I guess what I should have said is, I think at this stage in the election, Greg, it's probably yeah. not, makes doesn't make a lot of sense for a Stacey Abrams to attack the incentive package, does it? Yeah, and it's a lot harder for her to attack a project, not only that is creating 8,100 jobs, but also one that Senators Warnock and Ossoff are there to trumpet, that Joe Biden sent out a statement right. applauding. So it really, it really is, uh, you know, th this was not part of her focus on the campaign trail in recent days and certainly isn't, isn't part of her closing message right now. Margaret? Yeah, I, I think that um, there's no one, whether they're a Republican or a Democrat, who's, who's trying to get reelected or get elected in November, who's ever going to um, criticize a job, uh, the promise of job creation in the state of Georgia. I think where those other controversy comes in, the semantic controversy of campaign um, campaigning and campaign messaging is how you spend your money and what whose money are you spending. And from the Democratic side, I think the priorities about spending money is different than Republicans for sure. I think that also Republicans are just masterful when it comes to this disconnect between what usually happens when Republicans hold executive office, whether it's governors or presidents, that they are conservative, fiscal conservatives, where I mean, in, in at least, you know, the federal presidency, it's Republican president after Republican president that always spends more. They spend more on defense spending and corporate, um, you know, corporate uh, um, um, subsidies rather than the, the social spending that Democrats seem to favor. So it's, it's an interesting, for, for historians and political scientists among us, it's an interesting disconnect between between the rhetoric, which I think is what you, you started saying, um, Bill, you know, it isn't it isn't the time to criticize um, 
big, uh, big investments in Georgia, but certainly the direction of how we want money to be spent in Georgia is still part of the policy debate that that I think is, um, is very striking. Well, thank you for that, Margaret, because you lead me into the next subject I wanted to take up. Riley Bunch, uh, we know that Stacey Abrams is now had crafted her what we think is her closing message in these final days of the campaign, and she is focusing on just that. How is the state spending its enormous surplus? Um, Governor Kemp, we know over and over again, has talked about wanting to give it back to the people in uh, tax rebates um, and continues to say he'll do that. Uh, but Raleigh uh, Abrams now is uh, got a new commercial out. She says the money uh, needs to go uh, to uh, back to the people in a different way, in increased spending on education, in looking at initiatives of affordable housing um, and other ways in which she believes the money can be used in the long term, not just as an immediate give back. Riley? Yeah, and it, she calls this, you know, a quote, once in a generation opportunity to invest in Georgia. And I think it's really interesting because in the news collaborative poll that GPB took part of with the AJC and a number of other outlets, um, there was wide support for spending the surplus money in the way that Stacey Abrams is um, promoting, right? So you talk about safety net services, the healthcare system in Georgia, um, disability services, affordable housing services. There was wide support for kind of that um, avenue of thinking compared to Governor Kemp's tax refunds. Um, so it's not surprising to see her kind of push this message forward. And she, she's also very skilled at linking issues together. You know, she talks about Medicaid expansion and as um, tied to economic development in rural areas. Um, so to see kind of this wide sweeping message of how are we going to make Georgia a better place? How are we going to invest in the state in the long term that lifts up all Georgians, not just a few Georgians' pocketbooks? Um, that's not surprising to see from her in the, the kind of last stretch of her campaign. Yeah, Greg, I think that's right. Uh, to see Stacey Abrams doubling down again on the Medicaid message, expand it uh, completely, fully. Uh, it, it's an issue that served her well in 2018, and she believes it's still powerful today. And Greg, the other thing that's interesting about this is it, it goes along in many ways with what Bernie Sanders and other Democrats have been saying lately, and that's that Democrats across the country have been focused too much on issues like choice, uh, abortion, and not enough on the economy. They've let Republicans run away with the message on the economy. Well, Abrams is talking now about spending on the people's needs. And look, she's, I mean, this has been part of her campaign message um, for months, but it was really telling seeing her closing TV ad that came out on Tuesday focus on the economic message and, and not on a message about abortion rights. It certainly doesn't mean she's 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 shifting her focus away from that. She's got all sorts of other ads that, that focus exclusively on abortion. Um, but that closing TV message was an economic one. It talked about Medicaid expansion. It talked about um, that generational change that Riley just mentioned. It talked about her tax plans, uh, her tax refund plans, her plans to use the budget surplus. And so, look, it's an acknowledgement, and we've heard it once time and again, it's acknowledgement that the economy remains the most important factor to a significant number, a majority of Georgia voters in poll after poll after poll. It doesn't mean that abortion, guns, 
democracy, other issues that have come up aren't also very important, but the economy is the paramount concern uh, for so many voters. And both campaigns, on, on the, on all the campaigns, have acknowledged that. Uh, Tammy, is that what you hear um, on campus at Clark Atlanta in the community around the university? I hear um, that sometimes the message gets wonky um, where there's perhaps too much political talk um, and perhaps not enough connecting the issues together. Um, One of the um, discussions that we had yesterday was the lack of um, attention to the General Assembly and the importance of the General Assembly, not just the governor's race. Um, and, you know, you can have a Democratic governor, yet a Republican-led General Assembly, and you may not get all of the, the items that are on, you know, the list. Um, and we've also talked about uh, the lack of attention to the non-Black community. So we tend to focus on voting for the white community and the Black community, yet the Latino and the Asian community, you know, exist here in Georgia, yet we there doesn't seem to be a focus on um, on those two communities in particular um, when it comes to to voting and the process and even some of the issues. Um, while the, that, those two communities are still double single digit when taken together, it still is meaningful um, when you have races here in Georgia that are closed. You're talking about the Hispanic and the Asian Pacific community in Georgia. Yes. As a matter of fact. We're going to be talking about that exact subject on Political Rewind a little more extensively tomorrow. Uh, We've done that in the past, but we'll get into it in a deeper way on uh, tomorrow's show. Greg, before we have to take a break, a quick question for you. Uh, Maybe you can explain this to us. Um, It may have been your reporting. I certainly saw it in the AJC. The Abrams campaign has scaled back their TV ad buy in the final couple of weeks of this race. Um, Under, I think, a million Dollars, um, and they've been yeah. spending just enormous sums of money. Um, is it because they think there are diminishing returns that we're so saturated with spots that spending another couple of million dollars is not going to get anywhere and they'd rather use it elsewhere? Or what's happening with that? It's a great question. It's something I learned uh, on the ground here in Savannah yesterday. Um, and it's a significant shift and a really telling moment, you know, right, right when early voting is ramping up, uh, the Stacey Abrams campaign has pulled back its, its TV advertising from $2.6 million or so last week, and that's been about the standard for the last few weeks, to about a million dollars all told this week. And at the same time that Governor Kemp's campaign is spending more than $2 million, Warnock's campaign is spending more than $4 million between him and his allies on TV ads. So TV ad spending is you know, ramping up and she's pulling back. I'm not sure what the strategy is or if there is a, a fundraising problem. It doesn't seem like there should be because she's raised so much money. This could just be shifting to other parts. You know, she could be shifting more to digital or to on the ground resources because it doesn't seem like she has a dearth of resources here to spend money on in the, in the final stretch of the campaign. Yeah, Mark, before we, I got to get to a break, but Margaret, that's certainly one of the questions I would have is, is it, is this the moment when you divert a lot of money to your ground game, to the GOTV effort, get out the vote? Well, that's definitely what we're seeing here in coastal Georgia. There's a lot more attention being paid to the get out the vote 
um, campaign. But as well, um, Stacey Abrams is getting a whole lot of, of free advertising with target audiences. Oprah Winfrey interviewed her last week. She showed up over the weekend at the Spelman Moore House, uh, you know, um, um, you know, uh, um, homecoming. homecoming celebration. She homecoming. had she showed up also at at rap concerts in in Atlanta. So her target audience knows where she is and she knows how to find them. All right, we've got to get to a break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about Warnock and Walker and play for you a really interesting new commercial that Raphael Warnock has put on the air. We'll do that after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Just a reminder that Wednesday is the day that we send out the Political Rewind newsletter to you. If you're not a subscriber and want to join us, just go to gpb.org slash newsletters. And by the way, for those of you who say you've subscribed but you're not getting it, make sure that you're looking at the right subject line. The newsletter subject line says GA Today and then uh, politics. So it doesn't have Political Rewind. So make sure before you write us a note that you're not getting it, uh, that you check on that subject line. Um, uh, we have uh, Riley Bunch, Margaret Coker, Tammy Greer, and Greg Bluestein uh, with us for the show today. Let's talk a little bit about the Senate race. Um, Greg, let's start with the fact that <laughs> Raphael Warnock's campaign has put out a really funny uh, spot. Uh, it's in keeping with a lot of the commercials that he did in his original campaign, and now there's just something that's very appealing about the kind of positive, more positive messages that the Warnock campaign puts out. And this is a spot which warns about what will happen if there's a runoff. And we know most polls show that neither Walker nor Warnock are over 50 percent. Chase Oliver, the libertarian, is polling high enough to maybe create a runoff. So let's listen to the audio of a commercial you see a family sitting around, a big family sitting around the Thanksgiving table, and suddenly Raphael Warnock walks into the room. Here we go. Guess who's coming to Thanksgiving? Mom, we brought a friend. Raphael Warnock! That's right. I could be interrupting your Thanksgiving because if nobody gets 50% of the vote, there'll be a runoff. And nobody wants that to happen. Early voting has already begun, and there's no reason to wait till Election Day. I'm Raphael Warnock, and we don't have to mix politics and Thanksgiving. That's why I approve this message. Now can you pass the sweet potatoes, please? <laughs> now can you pass the sweet potatoes, please, Greg? Uh, it's really a very funny spot, but makes a point that both Walker and Warnock's campaigns want to avoid a runoff at almost all costs. They really do, because it's a reset. You, you just don't know what the dynamics will be. We, we know that up until last year, Republicans dominated statewide runoffs in Georgia. But of course, last year, they didn't. And this will be, especially if Senate controls online, this will be a complete reset of the race. 
the candidates themselves start mattering less and the and the political parties matter even more and there'll be Lord knows how much spending pumped into Georgia, just like there was almost a billion dollars in the 2020-2021 cycle last time around. I'm not saying it will reach that heights because it's only a four-week runoff, thank goodness, instead of a nine-week one. But I love this ad because the Democrats, it says, look, if, if Herschel Walker has been enough to persuade you to vote, then the prospect of, of more overtime might be, right? They're trying to do anything they can. And Herschel Walker's campaign should do the same thing because they know that uh, runoff is a is a crapshoot. You just don't know the dynamics. If if it's if the battle's for the 51st senator or 52nd senator, it's a completely different race than if it's for control of the Senate. And we just don't know how that's going to look right now. Well, Riley Bunch, one of the things that apparently the Walker campaign is trying to do to get over the 50% threshold is to uh, energize as much as possible the extreme conservative vote in Georgia. It's interesting that while other Republicans are staying away from Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, Walker was up in her territory at a campaign event with her uh, just the other day, and uh, he uh, pretty much bought into a, a lot of her most extreme messages about uh, the Democrats and certainly about Raphael Warnock. Yeah, I think it's important to remember, although we're seeing this very big surge during early voting, that does not guarantee that that's going to continue, right? So it's not surprising to see both sides kind of lean into their bases. And up in North Georgia, where a majority of voters and constituents support um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is this kind of extreme Trump loyal figure, is where Herschel Walker kind of has some guaranteed votes, right? He He's split a lot of people in the party in more of the suburban areas places that, you know, there there might be some tendency to vote, do split ticket for Kemp and Warnock. But up in North Georgia is an extremely strong constituency, and that's where he's looking to field his base, right? You know, get your conservative loyal voters out to the polls, and that, that's exactly why he's up there. Margaret, just one quote from Walker at that event, talking about Warnock, quote, he's not just a liar, he's a cheat. He's not just a cheat. I say he's a Marxist. I'm running against a wolf in sheep's clothing. That's Marjorie Taylor Green talk. Yeah, and I don't think that Warnock is reflected in the Thanksgiving ad you just played, uh, but it is. Um, it, it, those are statements that that um, people believe across the state. I mean, when when Warnock and Walker had their debate here in Savannah, we were at a watch party for Walker supporters. And you know, people were shouting at the, the TV screen um, showing the debate. They were shouting, he's no pastor. He's a fake pastor. So there's, um, there is a through line there from North, North Georgia to coastal Georgia. If you are a committed Trump loyalist, um, Herschel Walker and Marjorie Taylor Greene are your candidates, to be sure. But it's not enough that they're your candidates. There's also this. Um, this real dehumanization of the opponent that is, um, frankly, sort of frightening for, for um, what kind of society that we're building right now in Georgia. Um, yeah, it's no longer my ideas against your ideas. It's good versus evil. Tammy, what, yeah. what, let, me, let me ask you to weigh in on, on an element of the Walker campaign that deserves much more scrutiny because it's big in national Republican circles as well. And we're not going to get into it in depth today. But here's another quote from that Walker rally. It is time for a warrior to step in, and God prepared me to be that warrior. 
my heavenly father has given so much to me and now I have to give back and the way I give back is to get him, Warnock, out of office. The religious element in the Walker campaign has come more to the forefront than ever before. He started the debate in Savannah uh, the way a star football player would would uh, start his news conference after winning a game. He started by saying, I first want to uh, give praise to Jesus Christ, my my Savior, whatever. Um, how how should we think about that that pure religious focus and and that that Christian uh, uh, tone to the campaign? Well, first, let's acknowledge the hypocrisy that it's okay for Walker to um, to put his religion as part of his campaign, and Warnock, as being a pastor, is not able to do so. So let's acknowledge that hypocrisy first. Um, second, it goes to what um, the, the benefits of being a Trumpian supporter um, and advocate for the former president, because it is similar in that vein. Um, and I, I, I think that it's important for us to acknowledge the, that particular um, um, focus on religion uh, for a particular set of voters, um, and, 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 and which allows for the forgiveness of, you know, Walker's past and, and the violence and so forth, right? Um, at, at the same time, I, I'm curious as to how conservative, non-Trumpian conservatives um, are taking these messages in um, and if they are responding in the same way or do we see a bunch of Trumpian supporters and then we're equating them to conservatives. So I'm interested in that, that, that divide there. Greg, there really is an, a, an overriding religious tone to much of what Herschel Walker does on the campaign trail. There is. Um, it, the talk about redemption, the talk about, um, you know, finding the Lord and Savior. And, and, you know, as was kind of alluded to, when he talks about redemption, he still doesn't talk about the underlying issues that, that he's saying he's been redeemed from, right? He doesn't talk openly about his past abuse of, of, his, of his ex-wife and other women. And no matter how many times he's asked about it, including by reporters like me on the campaign trail, he dodges the question and then in, in, in public rally says he's been redeemed without, again, talking about what he's, you know, what, what led to his redemption and why he needs to be redeemed. And that's been an issue. And what Professor Greer was also alluding to, uh, how Senator Warnock has had, um, is not being, is not given the same runway by Republicans. Um, Herschel Walker routinely says you can't be a pro-choice pastor. So he basically is, is trying to devoid um, the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church from being able to say he's the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church. Of course, it has not stopped Raphael Warnock, Senator Warnock. He mentions all the time, one of his you know favorite joke lines is, I'm about to wrap up, but as you know, when a pastor says that, he might go on for another hour. <laughs> and everyone always laughs at that. <laughs> so it's, it's certainly at the center of his campaign message, but uh, Republicans and Herschel Walker supporters are trying to, uh, I guess, devalue that part of Senator Warnock's resume. All right, let's do this. Let's go to our final break of the show and come back with more on today's Political Rewind.
Riley Bunch, abortion uh, may not be the top issue on uh, voters' minds from based on the polling that we've seen, but it still remains an issue in the campaigns. You spent the last two days in Judge Robert McBurney's Fulton County courtroom watching the hearing in which uh, pro-choice advocates are arguing that the Georgia abortion law should be blocked because it's a violation of the state constitution's very strong right to privacy. What did you see unfold, and did you get any hints about how the judge might rule on this case? Well, you know, first I'd say if no one, if someone hasn't watched Judge McBurney preside over a trial, I highly recommend you do so. It's, it's very, very interesting. His personality makes it very interesting. He's engaged. He's fair, but he also pushes back on either side when they bring up points that might not, you know, be um, valid or have kind of solid arguments. So it, it was interesting to watch this trial. We saw about 12 hours over the course of two days of testimony in this new state constitutional challenge of Georgia strict abortion ban. And what's interesting is that, you know, this is a challenge under the state constitution of a person's right to privacy. And the plaintiffs in the case are saying that the abortion ban infringes aggressively on the state constitutional right, where the state has come back in their argument was that now that there is technically, quote, a third person involved in the decision to make an abortion since the, the personhood statute of the law, that it's no longer usurped by the woman or pregnant person's right to privacy. So it was really interesting to see those arguments play out in a different way than we've seen. But we also heard very similar testimony from doctors about how this law ties their hands, how it makes it hard to care for women in Georgia, pregnant people in Georgia. Um, and I think they're really trying to paint kind of a dire picture of what this law um, c- could mean and means for Georgia women. And, you know, I don't want to make any any um, um, hypotheses on what, which way this is going to go, but we are not going to see a ruling until after the election. Um, Margaret, that was an important point. McBurney announced that uh, at the first day of the of the hearing and uh, that he won't rule until after the election. But of course, we also know this is only the beginning of a process. No matter what which way this one goes, it's going to be appealed and continue to go up into higher courts, Margaret. Yeah, it's it's um, the the beauty and the frustration of the American justice system that the justice system does not uh, move at the pace of 24-hour news channels. But I think that as a an issue, you know, the 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 issue of reproductive rights, the issues of equality for half of the state's voters and half of the state's residents, women women have a different take on on how important this this issue is, and uh, I'm. I'm hearing from from our neighbors and, and residents in coastal Georgia that this is this is a defining moment for for especially for young voters, young female voters. If they want their voices heard, now's the time. And I know people going to the polls specifically to um, make sure that pro-choice candidates can get in this this year. Um, you know, we're not going to know that until the evening of of November eighth. How how important or how big that wave of voters are. And, you know, for the rest of us, we're all going to, um, you know, keep holding our breath to see, see what that new chapter of Georgia looks like. You know, Greg, it's interesting, of course, Go- uh, Governor Kemp on the campaign trail has said repeatedly that he has no intention of pushing for even stricter abortion laws in Georgia, a complete, for instance, ban on abortion. Um, but I-, I would imagine that he's going to, he or Stacey Abrams are going to face 
a legislature, which is certainly going to have some conservative Republicans who are going to try to push for a, a stricter, even stricter law. And one of the things I think is interesting about that is um, a defense against going there, but for some members might be, well, as long as the law that we've now got in place is still moving its way up the up the ladder in the court system, we shouldn't do anything else. Yes? Yeah, and this was the first question I asked him at the debate last week was, do you, do you intend to pursue stricter abortion limits? And he said no. But of course, as you mentioned, the legislature has to stay in this too. And, um, you know, and, and there will be Republican lawmakers who are going to be uh, uh, advocating for stricter abortion limits over the next, whoever wins over the next four years for, for sure. But we also have to remember what a fight it was to pass the current restrictions that are now in place, what Republicans called the heartbeat bill, only passed with one vote to spare in the Georgia House. And that was at a time when many, many even supporters thought it was just a symbolic move because um, they didn't see any future where Roe v. Wade would be struck down. Now, of course, it is a fact of life in Georgia um, that, that this and this law has now taken effect. So it will be a tremendous battle to pass anything additional. That doesn't mean that um, it might. You know, it doesn't mean it's ruled out. Um, even if Governor Kemp says that he personally doesn't support any new abortion limits, it doesn't mean that conservative lawmakers won't take this up as an issue. And it doesn't mean that, you know, in, in two or three years from now, um, there's somehow new momentum behind such a push. Um, all right. Um, Tammy, what's your sense of how abortion is figuring into the voters that you talk to out there? I'm not sure. Um, I am optimistic yet hesitant about the momentum continuing. Um, and I was when the decision uh, was was submitted or became officially public in the summertime is whether or not that this would be um, a, a multiple month issue for voters, particularly young voters, um, when it comes when you know for the election. I'm still curious as to how you know I'm in the details though, Bill. So I'm I'm wondering like. How can you consider an embryo or a zygote um, uh, to be a person when there's no social security number or birth certificate? How do these things, you know, work through? How do you continue to um, make this a thing when there are specific, um, um, you know, legalese, you know, for someone to be considered, you know, a living, breathing person inside of this country? And then, you know, square that with what is attempting to take place in Georgia. I see that there has been, you know, an inching toward this, yet I'm not sure of the longstanding resistance to it. And that's where um, I'm very curious about. Yeah, well, as uh, as uh, Margaret points out, we won't really get a sense of this until the ballots are all counted. Margaret, while well, we've got you here I want to turn to your congressional race down your way. You know, we've said on this show, as most media uh, 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 vehicles have, that the one competitive congressional district in Georgia is down there in the second where Sanford Bishop, uh, after 30 years in the House, is facing a pretty good challenger on the Republican side with new district lines. And I keep getting pushback from people down your way who say, wait a minute, Buddy Carter, the Republican incumbent, has a pretty good challenge on his hands 
from the Democrat, Wade Herring. Give us your take on that first district race and how it's unfolding. Yeah, the conventional wisdom shows that the first district, as it's been gerrymandered yet again, is safely Republican, quote unquote, safely Republican. But because Republicans have their own tribal differences right now in Georgia, I, I'm just not sure that I believe that conventional wisdom in large part because the quality of the candidate that um, Representative Carter is coming up against is pretty strong. And there's um, there's been a lot of political strategy behind Wade, Wade Herring's campaign. He's gotten um, this really, really important, I think, tie-up now between the Reverend Warnock's campaign and his own. There's a big you know, strategic push to bring out voters who might be Republican but are going to vote for Warnock, as well as people, that same group of people are probably going to um, try to um, cross over and vote for Wade Herring as, as their congressional representative as well. Um, Buddy Carter is, is, um, has a lot of mixed reviews within the Republican establishment and Republican base throughout coastal Georgia, in large part because of his actions on January 6th to vote against the ratification of the Electoral College vote. But as our incumbent now over his, um, his four-term um, um, incumbency, he's, he's also sort of narrowed his outreach to his base rather than constituents across um, across our, our congressional district. And I think there's a little bit of a backlash building against him. There's, he's also taking um, this campaign um, pretty lightly. There's not very many campaign events. Um, there seems to be a certain sense of comfort uh, among him and his team about having this in the bag. And so, you know, I, there, there, might be, there might be an electoral surprise here, but the real, I think the real important issues to watch is the quality of the candidate um, in Wade Herring, the strategy that he has with the very amazing and very powerful Warnock campaign. And really, um, he's been able to, to, um, to really tie up partnerships with the, the Democratic Get Out the Vote campaign. So if turnout's we high, I think Wade Herring has a good chance. We should point out Wade Herring is an attorney with a law firm down there. Uh, they got big clients, among them Gulfstream. So he is uh, no small-time country lawyer, I guess it's safe to say. So we'll watch how that race unfolds uh, on Election Day and beyond. Um, we are out of time, I'm sorry to say, for today's show. I, I do want to give you a little uh, uh, promotion for tomorrow's show. A number of you have asked us if we would talk about the four ballot initiatives that people will see when they go to vote across the state. Um, we'll try to explain them on uh, tomorrow's show, among the other issues that uh, we take on on Political Rewind. In the meantime, my thanks to uh, Margaret Coker of The Current, Tammy Greer, Clark Atlanta University, Riley Bunch, GPB News, and of course, Greg Bluestein of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Thank you all so much for uh, being part of today's Political Rewind. And thank you all out there uh, for listening to the show. One other quick reminder, I mentioned it yesterday. Next Thursday night, November 3rd, um, I'm going to be out at the Atlanta Jewish Book Festival uh, talking to John Meacham, who has a brand new book on Abraham Lincoln. And um, there are still some tickets, I'm told, for that event. If you're interested, just uh, Google the Atlanta Jewish Book Festival and you'll find uh, uh, tickets easily accessible there. That's it for us uh, for today. Back again tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay safe. Go out and cast an early ballot. 
and get vaccinated. Flu, COVID, whatever you want to do. Take care, everybody.